So I've been telling you the last few weeks that uh, there is a story that I could not wait to share with you, and today is the day. And uh, back in November, you know, we mentioned about this morning uh, that prayer is starting back this Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, here at the church. And uh, as we started doing that this fall, I'll share a little bit in a, in a minute just why that is significant. Uh, but during a season of prayer and, and fasting in our Tuesday morning prayer groups, God began to put something on my heart that I shared with the board, the church board, back in November uh, about our Christmas offering. And so those of you who have been here for the last few months, I won't go back through the whole story but you know that the end result of that was that we gave 100% of our Christmas offering away to tackle the issue of homelessness. And because you gave $111,000 towards the issue, we have a whole bunch of new beds that are opening at Harvest House and meeting the needs of people uh, for women in recovery and men and women who have been living out on the streets this winter. And, and it's not just a, an emergency shelter just for the winter like the city has been doing, but this is for year-round. Well, what you don't know behind the scenes is that when we made the decision to do that, it was a challenging decision. Because back in November, when our board made the decision to do that, we were $45,000 behind in tithes and offerings to meet our budgetary needs, to pay the light bill, the mortgage, salaries, ministry, outreach, missions, all the things that we do on a weekly basis here. And so in November, $45,000 behind budget. Our church year runs May 1st to April 30th. And so we're a good ways into the year. There's not a whole lot of time to catch up on that. If we end the year in deficit, that's really, really challenging. And yet we felt like God was laying it upon our heart to do something dramatic, something faith-filled and courageous in response to God's leading. You see, this is how God works. And so $45,000 in deficit, our church board had the faith to say, let's go ahead and give away more than we ever have before. And so we did. $45,000 in the hole in November. We gave away $111,000 in the month of December. And as far as the budget is concerned, we made a tiny little a bit of progress, and then frankly, then January hit, and three of the, two of the last three Sundays have been massively impacted by snow, and those Sundays, a lot of people don't give if they don't come on that Sunday, and so we started to lose some ground yet again because of having low attendance Sundays because of heavy snowfall. And so you begin to wonder in those seasons, God, what are you doing? Like you, you tell us that if we will step out in faith and follow where you lead, that you will make us fruitful and provide. And so a few weeks ago, we got notification that someone had left in trust a gift to the church for $45,000. See, see, here's what we've learned. 
This is not a new discovery for Christians who followed Jesus for many years. That when God asks us to step out in faith, we so often say, God, if you will make me fruitful and give me what I need, then I will step out in faith and do what you lead me to do. But God's economy does not work like that. God's economy is that he calls us to step out in faith and do what seems ridiculous. And when we do, later he shows up and says, you know what, all along I had your back. Amen, isn't that a good God that we serve? Uh, and, and, and I thought back to that. What was it in that November season? Was there something different when we were $45,000 behind and had this radical idea to give it all away? even more than we had ever done before. And what I realized was that back in November, that was a season when as much as ever before in my life, I had spent time in fasting and corporate prayer. Every Tuesday morning, right here at the church with people like you who come to pray at 7 a.m. And then every week on Wednesday at Highfield Baptist with other pastors around our city, who believe that God is up to something big in this part of Canada. Amen? Amen. So having said that, let's study God's Word. Okay, we're in Philippians chapter 4 today. We'll get to that in just a minute. Last week, we started this new series called Mythbusters. We are talking about some of the things that we tend to say, things that we tend to believe in our culture, and some of those things are not that big a deal, but other myths that we believe can have huge and negative consequences in our lives. And so if you were not here last Sunday... And or if you have not yet watched that message online, I want to encourage you to do so because I poured out my heart last week about some issues related to this very first myth that we're tackling in this series over the next uh, few weeks, actually the next few months. And we're not going to go back and review that again because you can do that online. But I do want to just really, really quickly remind you what the myth is that we're tackling right here at the first part of the series. And the myth goes like this. We tend to believe in our culture that if I cannot have things my way, then I cannot be happy. If I cannot have things my way, if I can't do what I feel, if I can't follow my urges and desires, if I can't do what I, I really feel deep down in my heart that I should be able to have things my way, and if I cannot, then I simply cannot be happy. And we saw four negative consequences from this kind of thinking. And we came to the biblical conclusion that, that the Bible says that happiness is not the byproduct of getting what you want but that many times happiness is the byproduct of learning contentment. And we said that if you would come back this Sunday, we were going to look at someone in Scripture who says that they had actually found the secret, the secret to learning contentment. And so that leads us today to Philippians chapter 4. Now before we get into this passage, it's very important that we understand the context who this was written by, when it was written, to whom it was written. This was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul, one of the apostles of Jesus, who began to spread the good news and was responsible for the sharing of the gospel in many parts of the known world at that time. 
He started churches all over the place. People's lives were being transformed. And he began to write letters to the Christians in these churches around the Roman Empire. One of the letters that he writes was to a church in a city called Philippi. And so to the Christians in Philippi, he wrote this letter that we call Philippians. And so Paul sits down to write to his brothers and sisters at the church in in Philippi. And as he sits down to write this letter, he talks about, about how much he wishes that he could go and be with them in person, but he cannot. Do you know why? The reason he cannot be with them in person and has to send this letter is because at this very moment, when he writes these words, he is sitting in a prison cell. And so when you understand that Paul is in jail, it adds a whole lot more context to what we are about to read. Let's read this out loud together. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 to 13. Okay, are you ready? Everybody clear? Here we go. Okay, good and loud. Philippians 4, 10 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. Let's say that again. Keep going. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, this is so good. Remember the myth. If I could just have things my way, then I could be happy. Paul says about four or five things, I think, in, this, in these verses that, that shatter this myth. And the first thing Paul says in verse 11 and 12 that we're going to pull out is where he says, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. I have learned the secret of being content. In other words, what he's saying is, my happiness is not based upon the circumstances around me. He says it doesn't have to do with whether or not things are going well or or badly. It doesn't matter whether I have a good job or a, a good relationship. It's not based on what my neighbor thinks of me or whether or not my boss likes me. It's not about whether I feel good or whether I'm I'm rich or poor, healthy or sick. Paul says contentment is not something that happens to me, it is something that happened in me. He says, I have learned this secret. Put it on the next screen. I have learned the secret of being content. Now, that leads to a question. Here's the question today. Where did he learn this secret? Let's put it on the screen. Where did he learn this secret? I think Paul tells us. You see, so many times it's hard to understand what's going on in Scripture if you do not study the history and the context and understand the rest of the Bible and how it all fits together. You see, what's interesting about this letter to the Christians in Philippi is that Paul, a few years before this, had actually gone to visit them 
in their city. And when he had traveled to Philippi, guess what happened while he was there? You guessed it. He was thrown in jail. <laughs> he was always getting arrested and put in prison, not because he was a master criminal. <laughs> it's not because he was a jewel thief or a bank robber. It was because he was out on the streets talking about Jesus. He was being persecuted for his faith. In fact, many Christians in that day and time were starting to get killed because of their faith in Jesus. So again, where did Paul learn this secret to being content. I wonder if it was years before when he had been in this very same city called Philippi to whom he is now writing this letter. And to the people in Philippi, he's saying, guys, think back to when I was with you a few years ago. Do you remember how Silas and I, Silas and I were out on the streets talking about Jesus and they came and they arrested us. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember how they threw us in jail and they took away all of our stuff and we didn't know how it was going to turn out and it, it seemed like things were going to be bad and that maybe they would even kill us. But do you remember what happened? He said, guys in Philippi, do you remember what happened when I was in jail there in your city a few years ago, in that dark, smelly, dingy, cold, oppressive, and depressive jail cell, Paul and Silas started singing praise to God. Look at Acts chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So what happened? Listen, they started having church right there in prison. And the louder they sang, the more the walls began to shake and the chains began to break and the prison doors flew open. And, and listen, my friends, don't miss, don't miss this. What we do here on Sundays is not of little significance. What we do here in, on Sundays is a huge deal because there is power in your praise. Listen, listen, you need to know that when you start to praise, the walls begin to shake. When you start to praise, your problems begin to shake loose. Your finances start to, to change. Your relationship issues start to rearrange because there is power in your praise. And, and listen, and listen, here, here is where Paul learned. Here's what he learned in that pre prison cell. He learned that praising God in your problems is when bondage starts to shake loose. And so in Philippians chapter 4, a few years later, Paul writes his letter back to these Christians in the very city where this had happened. And he says, guys, do you remember when I made praise the priority in the midst of my problems? Do you remember how I looked to the Savior beyond my situation <laughs> and how things began to change? And I learned the secret, the secret 
to being content. Leadership teacher John Maxwell was at a uh, big press conference where they had leaders from all around the country and around the world who were coming to learn from John Maxwell on leadership. And, and they did a question and answer panel where John and his wife, Margaret, were up on the platform, and they had a microphone down front where people could come forward and ask questions. And so, so uh, here they sit, and, and a guy walks up and, and stands at the microphone, and he says, John, no offense to you, but this question is addressed to your wife. I want to ask you, Margaret. Margaret, it seems like the two of you have such a, a good marriage, but you're so busy, you travel all around the world, and I want to know, is it all just a sham or is it true? Does John really make you happy? All of a sudden, the room got very quiet. <laughs> and people started to get a little uncomfortable when Margaret responded to that question, no, sir, John does not make me happy, not even close. <laughs> and John Maxwell about crawled under the table. He's like, honey, what are you doing to me? All these people in front of this big crowd, and you tell everybody that I do not make you happy. And here's what she said. I want to read, read it to you. She said, when we were first married, I expected John to make me happy. I thought it was going to be wonderful, but it wasn't. I got frustrated and discouraged, I got angry. I realized that John was not the man that I hoped he would be. She said, but then I realized one of the most important lessons in life, no one else can make me happy. My happiness cannot be based upon whether or not John is everything I want him to be. My happiness is a choice that I have to make for myself. And she said, once I learned that, once I chose to be happy, from that moment on, John has added immeasurably to my happiness. And John said, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Many times I'll sit down with a couple before they get married and ask, why do you want to marry this guy? Why do you want to marry this girl? And many times they'll say, well, because she just makes me happy. And I say, whoa, that is not going to last. <laughs> I mean, maybe for a little while. But see, for the long term, what you have to realize is that, number two, contentment can be found in any circumstance. A few weeks ago, I was at the gym uh, went in to work out and run on the treadmill. And afterwards, I went into the locker room, and it was really interesting. I walked into the middle of a conversation that was going on with a whole bunch of guys from all different walks of life. And these, these men had gotten into an interesting debate. They were discussing the question, what is the most important thing in life? I bet you women never knew those are the things that happened in a men's locker room. <laughs> Believe me, it doesn't happen very often which is why it tweaked my interest. You can imagine as a pastor walking in and people discussing that question because as a Christian, I have some very specific ideas about what is the most important thing in life. And so I listened because I was very interested. I know what I have to say. I wanted to know what they had to say. And it seems like everybody kind of agreed in the room that one guy either just spoke the loud, loudest or was the most convincing, I'm not sure which. But his argument was that 
the most important thing in life is your health, he said. Because without your health, you have nothing. And everybody seemed to agree, but I want to ask you today, is that true? Does the Apostle Paul say, I have learned the secret to be content as long as I feel good and, and am healthy? No, Paul says, whatever the circumstance. Catch this. See, it's not your predicament, it's your perspective. It's not your predicament, it's your perspective. That's what matters. Did you ever hear about the college student who wrote an email to her parents? And she wrote from university and said, Mom and Dad, I just wanted to let you know that I am okay, even though I was in a serious car accident. I survived with only a few broken bones and some hemorrhaging. On the upside, while I was in the hospital, the doctor who treated me was wonderful. We began dated, dating, and he has agreed to pay off all my gambling debts. I think I might be pregnant, but that's okay because he says he will leave his wife for me. I'm dropping out of school so that we can move out of the country. Signed, your loving daughter. P.S. I was kidding about all that. There was no accident, no doctor, no gambling, no baby. I did, however, get a C- in biology and a D in chemistry. Hopefully this will keep things in perspective. <laughs> Signed, your daughter. <laughs> See, listen, your perspective makes the difference. Number three, a balanced life is essential. Uh, Peter Drucker, another leadership teacher who does seminars all over the place, uh, has this little trick that he'll do sometimes, a, an exercise where at the end of the day of learning, where all these leaders and executives and high-performing people, he tells them, okay, what I want you to do is he gives them a piece of paper. And he says, what I want you to do for the next few minutes is write down all of the things that you have learned today that you plan to go home and implement in your life? What are all the new things you're going to start doing because of what you learned today? And so people start writing furiously because of all the great stuff that they have learned. And at the end, after just a few minutes, he says, okay, now what I want you to do is everybody stop, stop writing. I want you to now turn over to the backside of your page. And now I want for you to write down all the things that you have currently been doing in your life that you are going to stop doing so that you can start doing the new stuff. And everybody's like, uh, what, what? You want me to stop doing some things? See, 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 I, I want to add more stuff to my life, not less. But listen, the fact is, you can't do it all. Many times, you have to say no to things that are good so that you can say yes to things that are better. 